Convicted and Convinced, a message from God's Word for you. And now, here's Dr. Lloyd Willis with today's lesson. Good morning, Sabbath School. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you'll bless us in our study today, that the things that we study will will strengthen our faith and stimulate us in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, Lesson 12 deals with difficult passages. What do we do with difficult passages? Peter pointed out that there are such passages and such writers as Paul who were difficult to follow. It uh, has it as as the memory verse. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So there are some heavy passages and uh, some heavy writers like Paul. So what do we do with these? Well, first of all, on attitudes. David, in a prayer not long before his death, prayed, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17, You test the heart and are pleased with integrity. So whatever we do, it must be done with integrity. Also, Paul, uh, in his counsel to the young pastor Timothy, uh, said, watch your life and doctrine closely. So this is important. As you study, study responsibly, study diligently, study enthusiastically and carefully. There are reasons why some of these difficulties are there, and so we'll look at a few of them. Some of them are challenges that that are just difficult to understand. Some are apparent contradictions, and so on. First one, ancient languages and manuscripts are different from writings that we have today. They were written essentially without punctuation. And the first few centuries, the New Testament was written with all of the lines run on, no breaks for even words, let alone verses. And sometimes the the word at the end of a line was broken at at an inappropriate place and then continued on the next line. Here is a picture of some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus, and Codex Sinaiticus from the third and fourth, from the fourth and fifth centuries, and so that may give you the idea that that it hasn't been passed on carefully. Yes, it has, but there are some places where there are little ambiguities, uncertainties, and so uh, we're going to look at examples of that. The first one where the uh, original not having punctuation is a problem, is one we're all familiar with, Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. In this case, Jesus is speaking to the thief on the cross. And you remember that he said, let's see, Luke 23, 43. 
He made a promise to him. Luke 23:43. He said, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's how it's punctuated in the New International Version. And the KJV is about the same. So that indicates that Jesus is going to be with this thief in paradise that day. We know that's not true because Jesus on the Sunday morning said to Mary, don't touch me, I'm not yet ascended to the Father. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that there was no punctuation in the, in the passage originally. And so uh, according to their bias, translators have, have put it in that way. But it could just as easily be punctuated. Uh, verily, verily, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. And I noticed that in my Bible, in the footnote there, it says this paradise, that's the place where you spend time between, uh, between this life and the resurrection. That's even more confusing, but that's just a footnote. That's not inspired, as we could tell. So the punctuation does make a difference. There is such a thing as bias in translation. In the uh, quarterly, there's a quote from, uh, from Ellen White, some discrepancies in scripture might be due to minor errors of copyists or translators. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not from her. That's introduction to it. She says, these are her words, some look to us gravely and say, don't you think there might have been some mistake in the copyist or in the translators? This is all probable. And the mind that is so narrow that it will hesitate and stumble over this possibility or probability would be just as ready to stumble over the mysteries of the inspired word because their feeble minds cannot see through the purposes of God. So, yes, there may be these minor uh, punctuation or some other variant that uh, is, is a mistake that hasn't been copied carefully. They are minor, and we can have absolute confidence that what we have is the Word of God, and it's reliable to read, but we need to read intelligently. A second point, we are a long way from the ancient context, the ancient stories and their setting. Uh, remember that we had some rules of exegesis we talked about some time ago, some weeks ago. Uh, you need to study the historical context and the geographical context and the literary context, and that will help you. So we'll take an example of this. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28 is a problem passage or a potentially problematic passage. 1 Samuel 28 is uh, just towards the close of the life of King Saul, and he's been on a long spiritual decline. You remember that uh, in 1 Samuel 13, it talks about him acting as a priest. He made the sacrifice at Gilgal, and uh, God rebuked him strongly for that. Sometime later, in 1 Samuel 15, there was his disobedience over the Amalekites and, and not, king, not killing King Agag. And then there was, worst of all, the murders of the high priest and his family, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Then it says in 1 Samuel 25 verse 1, Samuel died. So now Saul feels absolutely cut off from God, the one that he's talked to so much and relied upon. Well, he, 
he sometimes relied on, and most of the time he rejected the kind of advice that Samuel gave. So uh, Saul is, is now he feels cut off. You notice what it says in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. That's a, sort of a, just an edit, a, a, a note that this had happened earlier. Then you go on to verse uh, 6, or verse 5. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. So God can give uh, information, guidance, through a dream. He could also do it through Urim. That's the Urim and Thummim, the two stones on the breastplate of the high priest. And if the answer was yes, the Urim would light up. If the answer was no, the Thummim would be clouded. And the Lord was not answering Saul by dreams or Urim, nor by prophets, because he had uh, rejected the counsels of, of uh, Samuel. He'd also uh, rejected the counsel of the high priests. The Urim could not function because he'd killed the high priest. Only one member of the family had escaped with the Urim and Thummim. So Saul said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. And he discovered that there was one in Endor. And then it describes the experience at Endor. Now, Endor is up in northern Israel. Uh, the, the battle that took place where Saul and his troops were fighting against the Philistines took place uh, on the slopes, the lower slopes, and the plain below Mount Gilboa, which is uh, almost as far north as the Sea of Galilee, but uh, further to the west. And... Uh, so he goes to the witch of Endor, and as you look at the council that says here, or the, the story as it tells it, um, she came to this, he came to this woman, and uh, the woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. And that's because he had asked him to ask her to bring up Samuel. And so now the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And she said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel because it was an old man wearing a robe. That's a rather jump of uh, logic. But anyway, Saul accepted that this was Samuel. But it doesn't say it was Samuel. However, it goes on to treat it as if this is Samuel who's speaking. Saul, so this is a problem. How, how do we explain this? Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, is it Samuel or is it a spirit? Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. That's not true. He'd turned away from God. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams, so I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel goes on and gives him advice. Why do you consult me now that the Lord's turned away and so forth? And he gives him a message that is a discouraging message. You're going to die tomorrow. You and your sons are going to die tomorrow. So what do we do with this passage? It's as if this is actually Samuel speaking. And uh, so what do we do? 
we know that it can't really be Samuel because uh, it's, it's using apparently the language of appearance, the one who appears to be Samuel or the one he expected. And so Samuel would not have responded back in verse 6. No answer from dreams, prophets, and Urim. No answer. So then uh, if Samuel would not have responded, uh, then we've got to come up with some explanation. The scriptures say that Samuel could not respond because he was dead. And Psalm 146.4 tells us uh, his spirit goes forth or his breath goes forth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. So death ends in the end of your thoughts. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. His sons are honored and so on, but he doesn't know anything about it because he's dead. He's unaware of what's happening. His thoughts have perished. He has no memory of such things. So if you go to the New Testament, you have the experience of, of Lazarus in John chapter 11, how that uh, verses 11 to 14, uh, Jesus discusses with his disciples and says, Lazarus is dead. Well, Lazarus is sleeping, he says at first. And uh, they say, well, if he's asleep, it's all right, no problem. And then Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then after he'd arrived and they go to the tomb, Jesus is about to open the tomb and bring Lazarus to life. But Martha says, Lord, he's dead. He stinketh. Is, is the, I think the King James Version says that. Or he has a bad smell now after four days. So uh, the scriptures say it could not be Samuel who's responding because the dead can't do that, as we see from these various passages. Therefore, it must be a demonic impersonation of Lazarus. And uh, I, I suppose this would be a, a fallen angel who is pretending to be Samuel and who's very happy to give Saul a discouraging message so that he will go to the battle uh, with a frame of mind where he's ready to commit suicide. And that's really what he did. He was injured and then he committed suicide. So uh, Saul fulfilled the prophecy by, by doing what... Uh, the devil, we could say, had told him to do. Also, incidentally, the story doesn't fit the immortality concept. In verse 15, uh, it says, Why have you disturbed me, bringing me up? The immortality concept is that a person is already in heaven, so he would be bringing him down. So even that doesn't fit. Uh, it does fit the biblical concept of evil and deceptive spirits and unconsciousness in death. So reconstruct the context as much as you can and then compare scripture with scripture to check up on, on what, is, what is really happening there. Another example, and here you have to admit that in the quarterly it points out we need to be honest in what we're doing. So studying the state of the dead from the book of Job, Job had the concept of death as being very close to him. He knew that uh, he was going to die, he felt. So in, in Job chapter 14, Job is expressing his thoughts. Job 14. And uh, he's discouraged. And so in verse 7, it says, At least there is hope for a tree. If it's cut down, it will sprout again. And its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. In other words, here is a contrast. Man is not like a tree. 
A tree, when it's cut off, many kinds of trees anyway, when it's cut off, it'll shoot up again. So we are not like a tree. Then in the next few verses, verses 11 and 12, we are like water. As water soaks into the ground and disappears and is gone. That's what we're like. When we go into the grave, we're gone. Not available. Until the resurrection, of course, which is brought out more clearly later. So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. That's verse 12. So uh, there is some uh, expression of what happens when we die here in Job chapter 14. In verse uh, 14 and 15, I'll wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. You will cover over my sin. So it, it's expressing the ideas that's, that uh, Job does still have hope. But uh, as you come down to verse 11, it says, if his son's honored, talking about the dead, death is inevitable, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 14. And then verse 21, if his sons are honored, he does not know it. If they're brought low, he doesn't see it. So, because he is unconscious, unaware of what's happening. But if you use that verse, you also have to explain the next verse. And read what that says. This is Job 14, 22. He feels but the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. That's one of those difficult passages. When a person is dead, does he still feel pain and mourn? That's what the verse seems to be saying. So how do we explain this verse? Verse 21 seems to be saying when he's dead, he doesn't know anything at all about what's going on. But then verse 22, but he does feel pain and mourns for himself. I don't know how to explain that verse, but if I'm going to use verse 21 to show what happens when you die, I have to be honest and use verse 22 and explain that too. I suggest it may be that uh, it's dealing with the person where death is getting very close and it's approaching and so he can still feel pain and mourning. Or it may be, as some of the commentaries say, it may be that this is just a metaphor. It's a metaphoric description of his situation. But either way, you need to explain one verse if you're going to use the other one. And so use the various passages of Scripture and you'll clarify that this is what's really happening. So, uh, sometimes there are other problems. For example, uh, grammatical ambiguity. In John 5.39, the King James Version says, search the scriptures. Jesus is speaking. And the King James says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. So that's an imperative, we call it. In the Greek, that would be an imperative. Search the scriptures. You need to search the scriptures. But when you go to the Greek, that word can be imperative, telling you to do something, or it can be indicative, describing what happens. And the indicative would be what is translated in the NIV as, as uh, basically, uh, you search the scriptures. Okay, you are searching the scriptures, and that's true, the Pharisees did. He's talking to Pharisees here. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, 
and yet they are they which testify of me, and yet you're not accepting me. So how do you determine? Is it an, uh, an imperative or an indicative? You can't tell except by the context. And so if you go back through the rest of the chapter, Jesus is in the context of, of confronting the Pharisees. So he's basically probably telling them, you do search the scriptures, so why don't you accept me? There are places like that that are ambiguous. There are other places where there's questions and we could talk about them. Romans chapter 11. The, uh, the fate and situation of the Jews uh, today, the, uh, the seven trumpets in Revelation, There's certain things there that we're, we're still searching for answers. So don't let a few difficult and challenging or ambiguous passages discourage you from uh, studying, reading, sharing. As in James chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, it says, He gives us more grace and he draws near to us. That's the reassurance. And that is especially true when we're studying the written word because we want to talk with the living word. He will give us grace and he will draw near to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. There are difficult passages, but your spirit can guide us as we pray for guidance and as we search and look for answers. Thank you for the way that you do this for us. Bless us that our appreciation of your word and our understanding of your word will grow more and stronger each day. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is a service of the University Parkway Seventh-day Adventist Church in Pensacola, Florida. Our weekly podcasts are recorded every Saturday morning. Bible study begins at 9.30. The sermon begins at 11. You are invited to join us. We live stream the 11 o'clock service. You can catch that broadcast at our website, universitypkwy.org, or at Livestream. A library of previous messages is available on our YouTube channel and on our website. Thank you for listening.